Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, the ALP has recommitted to an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Australia's biggest mine project chalks up six years since it was first approved. It seems no closer to actually being allowed to go ahead. And today, the one millionth voter will cast his or her pre-poll vote, even though we're still 10 days out from the election. Our panellists will pull apart these issues, and then in our final segment, as always, we will look at books and culture. They'll share what they've been into lately, including a new book on religious freedom, another called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, one on universities called Cracks in the Ivory Towers, and finally, the Netflix version of Ted Bundy's Life and Crimes. The Brains Trust today includes, first of all, my esteemed co-host, Dr Chris Berg from RMIT University, who joins us from San Francisco. Thank you, Scott. Great to have you on, Chris. Uh, the second time from San Francisco. It's a bit... Uh... <laughs> it's just a lovely place I love to go to. <laughs> so, yeah, blockchain, blockchain. Also, my blockchain, colleague, blockchain. a stalwart of Looking Forward Research fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. And finally, the long-awaited debut the, of the head of the IPA's Legal Rights Project, Morgan Begg. Oh, thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Great to have you on, Morgan. Looking Forward is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're one of nearly 5,000 members making this program possible, thank you. And if not, this is your chance to join. Follow the links in the program notes. You can join for as little as $22. We're going to start with Indigenous recognition uh, because perhaps away from the main election spotlight, the man the bookies tip will be our next Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Senator Pat Dodson, has been doubling down on the ALP's commitment to the Uluru Statement. Andrew Bushnell, you've been following this. Yeah, that's right, Scott. So as, as you say, the, the ALP has a... Since since the, the Uluru Statement from the heart uh, was uh, issued in 2017, the ALP has been committed to running a referendum in its first term of government should it win the election. Uh, and the referendum would, esta- would essentially... Uh, be to establish what's called the the voice to parliament, which would be um, an indigenous representative body. Uh, so Bill Shorten recommitted last week to this. Uh, he called it a long overdue step. Um, Senator Pat Dodson spoke at the ALP campaign, uh, and he spoke about how this representative body might work, and and what they've started putting out is this idea that it might be. Uh, constituted of a number of regional Indigenous bodies that would feed into the top-level Indigenous body. Um, and as I say, the, the voice to Parliament really emerged from this 2017 National Constitutional Convention um, that was held to discuss uh, Indigenous recognition in the community, um, and that produced the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which which made a, a couple of uh, proposals. The, the first was the voice to Parliament, and it left that the scope of that quite open. Um, the, the, the statement from the heart doesn't really say exactly how this would work. So that's what the Labor Party's kind of debating at the moment as it looks like it's going to win the election. Um, and it also called for um, a Makarata uh, commission, which would serve kind of like a, as a truth and reconciliation commission, but also would be a body that would be able to negotiate agreements between Indigenous Australians uh, and state and territory governments. So that's, that's kind of what's on the table here. Um, I think we've kind of underlying this is, this is, this is perhaps like the greatest manifestation, I think, of, of the politics of recognition, the idea that um, moving away from the idea that we might all be governed by exactly the same laws based on a kind of abstraction about who we are to a view that fairness requires that we recognise 
people's uh, core or essential attributes uh, in, in order to give them uh, full participation in democracy and, and live uh, dignified lives. So I know, Morgan, that uh, you have a view on this, so I'll, I'll pass over to you. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I'll start by saying that I think the one thing I've come to expect from this whole debate is that uh, no matter how many times it appears to be rejected um, as the you know, divisive uh, concept that it is, uh, it keeps coming back. <laughs> it, uh, it just won't stay away. Um, and also uh, just the the, the vagueness um, of the of the proposals over the years that's uh, where we seem to be stepping away from clarity. <laughs> uh, it, it begun uh, this the the Uluru statement. Um, it was originally conceived that this would be a body within the constitution, um, and then at a later iteration, it was uh, a, a, a more localized, decentralized multitude of uh, voices to parliament. Uh, and now the uh, the Dodson statement uh, that we saw last week seems to suggest that it's it's actually all of the above uh, or any of the above. Um, and clearly, you know what I think what we're what we're seeing is that we're moving towards the idea that we'll have uh, uh, you know as many as a hundred or more um, sort of uh, active political un- but unrepresentative political participants vetoing um, vetoing policy at a state federal and local well, level. Dodson raised that, this idea that um, an Indigenous representative body would essentially uh, operate as a third um, chamber of parliament. And he, he just rejected that out of hand. Mm. He said that that's just dismissing our concerns, not taking it seriously. That's not what this body would do. Um, and sure, in, in, you know, in the past, there have been Indigenous representative bodies, or at least ones that purported to represent the interests of Indigenous Australians. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking here of That's the Australian and yeah, Torres Strait Islander Commission. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how is this different from that when we know that that was... This, this is... Sorry, Chris. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, this is absolutely right. So it, this is a absolute failure of the indigenous recognition process because we are so far away from the um, amendments to the constitution that the recognition process was originally intended and had bipartisan support to pursue. Now we appear to be redoing a version of the, as you say, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission at SEC, which had been, which had been set up in 1990, abolished in 2005, it was agreed that by both sides of uh, of parliament that it was a failure as a representative body. Um, uh, That that, that abolition has been um, uh, an incredibly sensitive issue in the Indigenous community and um, we well might be ending up where we have abolished APTIC for 15 years and then we rebuild APTIC again. But in the meantime, we've had this massive debate about recognition, about constitutional change that has really stopped going nowhere. And and with your indulgence, the, the real issue with constitutional recognition has always been that the policies that would be supported or the constitutional amendments that would be supported by both sides of parliament, the sort of couple of symbolic changes, um, uh, maybe a maybe a preamble or a statement, um, uh, getting rid of some uh, either seemingly redundant or um, uh, problematic sections of the constitution was never going to be satisfactory to the indigenous community. And, I, and to be honest, I can understand why. But whatever happens, you can't have white Australia putting through a constitutional referendum for black Australia that the Aboriginal community does not support. 
and that's why we're where we are today. And that's why it's kind of un- the, the the kind of unsatisfying bit from what Pat Dodson was saying was that um, the referendum process would have uh, Australians would be would be basically given a sketch of how this body would work, and people would have to vote on that, knowing that it would be Parliament that would fill in the details. And I I wonder if he's actually in leaving the details up to the parliament and making the referendum question less clear, he's reducing the chances of success. But as you say, Chris, the the the, the kind of high-level consensus changes that might be possible um, won't get to this this real, the nub of the issue, which is this idea of recognition. And in the Uluru Statement of statement from the Heart, they actually talk about uh, a co-sovereignty or the, the, the sovereignty of the Indigenous people having never been abolished existing alongside the sovereignty of the crown which is a much greater uh, more complex constitutional issue uh, and that the sort of the, the lack of clarity around that is really I think going to going to be fatal but it's kind of a, a, a dilemma because um, there's no way to do it simply yeah this this but is it's a, it's a dilemma pretty easily resolved though surely I mean so ASIC was set up as an act of parliament and you can have a voice to parliament set up as an act of of parliament, as long to the extent that you're unwilling to make constitutional changes, you can have an advisory body that feeds into parliamentary decisions as much as you want. That's that's the productivity commission. It strikes me that there is a quick path through it. But the, but then it's not a representative body. No, no. I think you you uh, Chris, you're understating how how difficult this is. The reason why it's been deliberately kept uh, vague is because conceptually this is actually impossible to pull off. You can't have a a sovereign mm. voice um, then which is somehow uh, uh, working towards a sovereign parliament um, and supposedly and there's a lot of uh, you know it's suddenly sometimes played up and sometimes played now the idea well you only have to be consulted on legislation which affects indigenous people well of course all legislation affects indigenous people one way or another and and consultation is a moderately fraught concept anyway uh, in terms of so do you talk to people when you're thinking about bringing a bill into parliament do you have to check every single amendment in which case it is actually a third a third chamber sometimes bills you know we just saw the the bill that was jammed through uh, outlawing um, uh, a variety of uh, social media activities uh, which took shape on the final night in the Senate. Um, does that have to be referred back to an Indigenous voice? And it's not just that... It's not just the, <laughs> it would have helped. It would have helped. It's not in just, that case, it wouldn't be a bad thing. It's not yeah. just the written constitution either. It's the, the establishment of a body outside of the written constitution will quickly lead to the establishment of conventions about the times and circumstances in which this body needs to be consulted. I mean, that is actually the real constitution of Australia is all of the conventions and habits that go towards governing the place. And this this kind of, this, this is the deeper constitutional issue that hasn't really been contemplated and that ultimately um, will underlie a debate about changing the written constitution is what will this really mean in practice? And I think a, a, a kind of a vague statement about uh, a, like a sketch of the body um, leaving it up yeah. to parliament is going to be really hard for people to to swallow just because they can't anticipate the uh, the downstream effects. Well, I th- what I think we're seeing here, though, and, and this is why, I mean, Morgan, you mentioned that this is kind of an issue that recurs in our debate, and I think that speaks to the fact that it, there is an underlying need here. It won't go away. This Whether you call it recognition or you call it something else, there there's a, a, a sense of unfinished business about the sovereign uh, set up of this country. 
Uh, and I think that will keep coming up. But my concern is that if we write into the Constitution different representation for different Australians, we're actually making our constitutional equilibrium less stable, not more stable. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think um, uh, unfinished business is a, is a reoccurring uh, phrase that pops up in this debate, uh, particularly as a, as a consequence of the 1967 referendum and uh, there's finishing. I think Tony Abbott was um, particularly prone to saying recognition was about completing uh, what happened in 1967. Um, but in my, in my view, um, the, uh, what 1967 actually kicked off was this um, was the explosion of the welfare state for the Indigenous communities, um, and which is uh, in turn uh, the, and the bureaucracy and you know, all the, um, uh, the, the handout culture and, and, all, and, and all the associated issues. And I think that's actually – we're focusing on things like voice to parliament and you know, recognition, constitutional change, and we're actually ignoring a, a really a, a deeper issue in Indigenous communities that just – yeah, it's just it's, it's just a, it's, not being addressed. It's a good point. I think that that was an issue that was on the table for during the Howard years. It was it was always very much framed as uh, an argument between those who uh, were interested in symbolic measures, mm. uh, as opposed to those who were focused on practical reconciliation. Uh, was the phrase of the of the day, and then and then there was the intervention in the Northern Territory, which was about uh, abuse in Indigenous communities, and that was sort of the. And and you could locate yourself somewhere on that spectrum, and and uh, people like Noel Pearson um, uh, went from one to the other, and and then perhaps uh, believed that they were not mutually exclusive. I find at this election, this is probably the first election I can remember since forever where the Liberal Party has not actually really articulated anything anywhere on that spectrum. Um, yeah. And Pat Dodson actually uh, called out the uh, the minister because. Although Malcolm Turnbull said the coalition would not support this kind of measure, they've allocated $7 million in the budget to consult on how it would work, which is a curious <laughs> yeah, sort of process. Extraordinary. But that's, and this, is, this is the basic problem with the um, Indigenous recognition process, though, and, and I think that the Indigenous communities have it right, that the recognition that, that was being offered to them with some minor changes to the Constitution, um, symbolic changes to the Constitution, and some sort of preamble, some sort of statement or something like that, was just purely symbolic. It, it defined symbolic recognition and if I, uh, if I was acting on behalf of the indigenous community I think I would this idea of an indigenous voice to parliament suits that quite is, is quite the opposite of that it's clearly not symbolic it's a clear and unambiguous seat at the table it offends my sense of liberal democracy and um, uh, democratic equality but it is much more significant and much less symbolic than what the Conservative government under Tony Abbott and then under Malcolm Turnbull was was purporting to offer. Absolutely. So we shall see what happens after the election and uh, perhaps for the next 100 years as our descendants are still debating uh, unfinished business. Uh, speaking of things that go a long time, um, John Ruskin was talking about the, uh, the Adani project, the uh, Carmichael coal mine uh, last week, and... Uh, is remarking that uh, you know it's it's split politics and Bill Shorten says one thing in Queensland and another thing down south, uh, but meanwhile the practical result is that the 
ALP government in Queensland has put the project on the back burner again some uh, six or seven years since it was first uh, supposedly approved. Yeah, 2010 was uh, the approval by the Bly Labor government in Queensland. Um, so that's how long this has been kicking off. The, 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 the Carmichael car mine, known as the Adani mine, because the rights are owned by India's Adani group, um, we could probably argue about whether the, the choice of naming that the left-wing activists have chosen is xenophobic or not. Um, I mean, why not refer to it as the Carmichael car mine? Uh, car mine? Um, uh, but so Adani spoke about, um, this, is, this was in the news again this week, because Adani had spoken previously about perhaps um, reducing the size of the mine at least for a time and then scaling up perhaps and getting the so just to basically start earning some revenue towards this um, you know to recoup some of what they've spent over the last 10 years um, but the, the the labor government up there in Queensland has said no we're actually processing all their environmental approvals based on the original size of the mine which is huge it's like 60 million tons of coal every year um, so it's a very big mine um, and We've had, I mean, actually related to the, the, the previous topic, you know, the, part of the debate around this has been um, Indigenous land use agreement. That went to court in 2018. Um, the agreement was um, upheld by the court, um, but there's still some dispute among the local Indigenous people about whether that's valid. But the current, the current holdup is something to do with the supposed threat to the black-throated finch, which is an endangered bird local to the area. I mean, I, I put it to you, Morgan Begg, that what is actually happening here is a clash of worldviews between dominion and pantheism, between the idea that, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, just to put it in probably the smallest, most precise terms I can imagine. No, but it, it's between, uh, you know, people who think that we can use the environment to benefit humans. I mean, that's what the coal mine is for. We don't, mm. we don't want it just because we love coal. We love what coal does you know, does for humans um, versus people who think that, um, you know, we can't exploit the, the world in that way. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that like there's a kind of a middle path here around the word stewardship or something where we can have both. We don't have to destroy the world in order to use it. But is that what you, is that what you see? Do you see like, do you see this as like a, a clash of worldviews or do you see it as more of the legal minutiae? Uh, no, no, that's that's right. There's, yeah, a, there's clear, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, hey, first time we, here. We, right? <laughs> we look forward to the High Court case on Dominion v. Yeah. Pantheism, a case for <laughs> Dominion argued by Embeg <laughs> QC. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, so it sounds like um, you know, on top of the uh, the 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 years and years of environmental approvals and um, that process, they've also they're also relying on. Um, the, the 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 opponents of the mine are also relying on uh, the protection of native species and and the the legal framework around that and there's clearly you know these are just some of the um, uh, some of the impediments which have uh, formed the the massive explosion in environmental law. Th- these are the same native species that would get chewed up by spinning windmills, I assume. Oh, <laughs> or eaten by feral cats. I mean, you know, this, this, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, and I did uh, study environmental uh, law. Once and you know this 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 is one of the issues that um, you these uh, the proponents of these projects have to do studies and they turn up say you know black throated finch but that you know w- the population of which stretches pretty much up the entire east coast of, of mm. Queensland there might be some 
some subspecies, and it is a you know extinction is, is no doubt a serious threat. But it's like suddenly it is Adani's responsibility to know everything about the black-throated finch, to have all the management plans for something which you know is is covering you know th- literally thousands of miles of territory. But whatever Adani does is supposedly the most critical issue, and and of course in a in a proper process, what happens is all the environmental issues should be identified at the start of a project, they should be assessed and governments make a decision. But what, what it actually becomes is an excuse not to make a decision and that's and that's really where we are. It'd be better off, if, if, if Labor doesn't want the Adani mine, it would have been better off just to say so at the start. I mean, instead, you know, under the cover of these environmental laws, you just keep putting it off and putting it off at, you know, at what cost to Australia's uh, reputation. And... Uh, yeah, sorry. So, no, so no, that's go, go absolutely on. right. No, no, so that's absolutely right. And and I'm just thinking on the fly here. What's interesting about this is um, what it has done is politicize what in a capitalist economy should be a depoliticized decision. So it is up to the Labor Queensland government to decide and the minister to decide whether the um, plan protect adequately protects the the black-throated finch or, or whatever the next species that they they identify, which is the opposite of really really how we imagine the economy functioning, which is that there are neutral rules, there might be some regulations that are neutrally applied, and then you just go off and do it. And what when when this when this came um, when this black-throated finch problem was announced the other day, um, I was actually looking a lot about. China's Belt and Road Initiative and just the vast amounts of infrastructure and the controversies around the building of that infrastructure around the world. And and the question that I have to the panelists, to my co-panelists, is, is this a harbinger of some significant change in the way a modern developed economy works? So we build up layers and layers of red tape to the extent that we completely repoliticize decisions about major projects, about infrastructure building, just about any major economic activity. And so we're, we've got two highly political, politically organized systems, the, the, the Chinese system and the, now the Australian system through red tape with different goals. One wants to grow and, and we, turns out, we don't want to grow. We want to most importantly protect the black-throated finish. Isn't that a terrifying direction that our economic development has has gone yeah that's right i think uh clearly this this uh the layers of uh bureaucracy and um red tape it's clearly just a kind of prohibition by stealth i think the intention is not that oh you know the decisions will be carefully made after uh an appropriate amount of scrutiny it's to you know keep keep holding it off and keep pushing it back and pushing it back until businesses just um, ultimately say, oh, look, it's not worth doing this. Uh, so we yeah, There's do a kind of anti-development a- agenda here, which is, you know, I guess kind of an idealisation of a country as a hobbit village, which I'm not necessarily, <laughs> I'm not necessarily <laughs> opposed to it. Deal. Yeah, I'm not, actually op- I'm not actually opposed to it. I mean, I would probably live in the Shire, like I'd be, I'd be all right, but... The, the the problem is the problem the problem is as actually I mean I'm not a big Lord of the Rings guy I mean I thought those movies were boring but it does kind of make oh. this point that the that the protection of of the Shire depends on sort of more developed people around it and you're at you're under mm. threat so 
I mean, I would care about this a lot less if it weren't for the case that yeah, I mean, we have dwarf, strategic... The dwarves did all the mining. Yeah. I mean, they still had a thriving yeah, yeah, mining exactly. in We there. still have... Exactly. We have... And what's more, right? Steal from what's somewhere. more, the threat in that movie to the Shire comes from um, the archetypal industrial era um, bad guy, right? It's like this big black smoke-filled place, right? The city. Yeah. Um, but you are oh. under threat. I mean, to, to return this to the to the real point, please. <laughs> so I, would no, care, I, I would care really a lot hard. less. I would Can care, he land this? Everyone, I would care a lot less about this. Waiting. I would care a lot less about this agenda were it not for the strategic implications. So you talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. We know that China will always pay lip service to the agenda of spoiled Westerners. But meanwhile, in the background, it is always about pursuing its own interests, um, and it. It doesn't care about the black-throated finch or its equivalent in China. It cares about rapid growth in its uh, in its capital base, in its human capital, in its ability to project its power around the world. And if our idea is that we can just retreat into a ball, curl up, you know, in a corner in our nice little green underpopulated island um, against this, then we are setting ourselves up for a long-term failure yeah the stakes are partic- partic- particularly high in australia because um and yeah we we can care about the black-throated finch but the promise of these environmental assessment processes is, is that the rules are known at the start you do the assessments you do the work you, and it can proceed through to approvals in a timely fashion and that's the promise that's being broken and it's particularly a problem for australia this might be happening across the west but we are, we have this unique profile and um, you know, versus Europe or, or even the USA in that um, uh, we are first world country with the economic profile of most less developed countries. Um, you know, some people are embarrassed about our relative reliance upon resources, uh, but it is actually uh, both a fact and one of the sources of our strengths. And so if Belgium has a terrible environmental approval process for coal mines, it probably doesn't make any goddamn difference because they'll, they'll, they'll live off the earnings of all those sponges at the EU. But for Australia, it matters a heck of a lot. This it is- does. And it's it sort of what concerns me is that there's this, there's this natural cap on growth. So as government grows, it imposes more and more red tape um, and eventually that slows the potential growth and therefore the living standards of, of, of um, the people who live under that government. And, and we... And this is this is obviously the Institute of Public Affairs interest in in this that we we actually are at crisis situation that we do seriously need to do massive regulatory reform across the board. But um, these major projects, because they are so large, because um, uh, they 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 attract so much attention, are really indicative of the much broader problem about the the growth and breadth of regulation and red tape across the Australian economy. We'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, well, a little bit, a lot, about calculation problems. And the the idea that Adani is in a position to ca- quantify, calculate um, how, its, uh, how its mind will impact on this, this particular species, species in the area, um, is, a little bit of, is a little bit of an absurdity, right? That in, when you act in the world, you have to sort of uh, uh, act under uncertainty to a certain degree. And... I think that gets at this at why this kind of regulatory process actually sets companies up to fail. It's it's deliberately asking them to do the impossible, which is to guard against every single yes. possible Pro- downstream. Prove to us that this will not 
do X, Y, or Z. Prove that if you do X, Y won't occur. And the reason I bring this up is because at the same time we're seeing this renewed debate about Adani, we have the Labor Party pushing probably the single most absurd environmental talking point I've ever heard, which is that we can quantify uh, using models the impact of something like the Carmichael coal mine on the environment, on on the climate, but the idea that you might ever put a price on that (laughs) <laughs> is impossible. Money, money is too important to be counted. So economic uh, economic modelling. They're, they're on board, they're, right? They're on board with the calculation <laughs> problem when it comes to economic modelling, but climate modelling, which is subject to a number of the same, uh, the same underlying uncertainties, right? I mean, we're talking about anthropogenic climate change, right? Well, let's just remember what anthropogenic means. It means that it's human-made, right? Man-made. The same way that we can't anticipate human actions in response to economic incentives or any other incentives in the environment preclude us from economic modelling to the nth degree. But we're actually talking about a man-made problem when it comes to climate change. So surely the same logic applies to the climate models. Um, And so to bring this back to Adani, again, what we see is this selective scepticism about what you might know about the future. And it's just... You know, it's so arbitrary that it can only mean that they're setting us up to fail. As opposed to telling us exactly what the climate's going to be in, in the year 2100 under under their models. Nicely. The only true certainty, Scott, the only true certainty. That's right. And uh, ordinarily, uh, I'd say something like, well, people with an interest in that would get their chance to vote on uh, May the 18th. But as it happens, today it is believed that by the end of today, one million Australians will have already cast their vote, will have already expressed an opinion on what we were just talking about, even without the benefit of listening to the Looking Forward podcast. That concerns <laughs> me deeply that this is the way our voting system is starting to work. Yeah, and a million, a million is a lot more than previous elections, right? It seems to go up every year, but it's gone up dramatically. This year, which I think... You know, on, on one one level, you could probably say has something to do with the fact that Australians seem to have made up their mind a long time ago about how they were going to vote en masse in this election. I mean, the, if you believe Australian polling, um, you know, the polls have been consistently um, in favour of Labor now for years. So maybe people are just like, let's just get this over and done with. We, we don't need to hear any more from this, you know, haphazard, useless government that we have. Um, some... Uh, MPs, like I think uh, last week Josh Frydenberg, um, have noted that early voting has made it harder for them to engage with their constituents during the election campaign because there's a lot of people who have already voted who don't want to engage, but that of course wastes a bit of time for the MPs in trying to find out who those people are. If you're out on the street shaking hands, every second person says to you, I've already voted and just walks past. Um, I I do have the world's tiniest violin for them in that context. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is a bipartisan thing. I mean, Anthony Albanese has noted as well that three weeks for early voting seems to be a long time. Um, uh, But neither leader wants to broach the subject because he'll definitely be seen as complaining, right? If you're in the middle of the game and you go, well, the rules of the game are terrible, Um, you know, in Australia that just won't fly. But my view is, and I think, well, I know for a fact that Chris disagrees, but I think this is terrible. I think that people are essentially voting in different elections. They're voting um, with different information. They're voting, you know, you might vote and then in the last three weeks yeah. of the campaign something scandalous happens. It turns out, you know, that Bill Shorten is a Russian agent or something. 
Um, <laughs> um, and and you've already you've already voted, and that's it. Um, so you, every, the 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 point of a of an election, I would say to you, Chris, is that um, the point of an election is to to take a measure of the population in a particular moment in time, not moments in time. Um, and so the validity of the results returned by an election is actually undermined by stretching the period out. Um, so what do you say to that? I disagree. I am a strong partisan of early voting. I think not only is it acceptable, it is actively good. So I've already voted because, of course, um, I had to hop on the plane yesterday. So I've, I've done my voting in the early voting and they didn't actually ask me whether I had an excuse or anything like that. They just they just handed me a ballot and said, mark this off. But the reason I think that early voting is good is because um, is sort of for, for behavioural reasons. I think we are excessively influenced, and the parties know this, by information that is released in the last couple of days of an election. And that information released in the last couple of days of an election is done deliberately so, so that we can't overthink it, so that we can't analyse it, so that we can't find a second piece of information. And it is absolutely true that tomorrow or on on May the 17th, it may come out that, um, uh, that Bill Shorten is taking money from Putin or something like that. But I think to vote on those grounds would be really potentially misleading because, well, maybe he, maybe everyone gets money from Putin or something like that. What, what I think the real reason that we vote and why I'm very comfortable with early voting is to assess and predict the um, success of the government that is in power. If you do not know in this election, if you do not know how successful the coalition government has been for the last six years, you should not be swayed by a piece of information that comes out in the last couple of days. In fact, you might learn or you might be misled by new information and it might make you forget that, hold on, we have seen this government. It, it might be a good government, it might be a bad government, but you actually, we have some facts to go on. Now, now the other side is what if, what if they announce a promise or a policy ahead of time or, or just before the election as well? Well, you know, governments don't really achieve their promises. And, you know, the reason that we know that because we've had six years of this particular government and we had six years of the previous government and 11 years of the government before that. You actually learn a lot being a citizen. It's not, I think we wildly overstate a, the importance of an election campaign and swinging votes, but also very much the democratic significance of that. So vote early and vote often, I say. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm divided on the topic. I used to, I probably used to share Andrew's view um, a bit more staunchly than I would today. Um, I think uh, the the problem that you cite um, of uh, an early voter coming to regret their vote, um, I would I would like to see that remedied um, not by abolishing early voting, but by having more frequent elections, so that uh, a regretful voter doesn't have to va- uh, doesn't have to wait for three years or four years as it is in all of the states now uh, to. Um, you know, cast another vote or what what their preferred opinion would be. Um, so, yeah, uh, more frequent elections, I think. Yeah, I, no, Chris, all of your reasons uh, are coherent, intellectually coherent, Thanks. but they've got nothing to do <laughs> with God. why any of this is happening. I mean, it's 
As you say, you walked into a polling booth and they didn't even ask what your reason was for pre-poll voting. The Electoral Act says, you know, there are eight or nine grounds that you have to cite, you know, I'll be out of the country on the day or I'm... Uh, have a disability which prevents me or I, I can't turn up because my former spouse will assault me or, you know, all these... Re- and the Electoral Commission just ignores them all. It's just convenience-driven. It, it, it's the McDonaldization of, of, of voting. It's not... No, the, no, it's not no, big, no, and, no, and, no. And it disadvantages uh, minor <laughs> parties uh, who, who or independent candidates who can't necessarily get people out all the time to hand out how-to-vote cards at pre-poll centres... Um, I mean, that used to be an afterthought um, uh, in parties' strategies. Now uh, they're, they're, they're constantly calling on their volunteers to get out for this three-week period. Only the major parties supported by the unions or get up can actually do this. Exactly. 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 The problem The problem here is that, I, I mean, I, I can see, again, I agree with Scott, I can see the logic in your position, Chris, that we want to get, <laughs> we want to get our impressions of the government over the full three years. But as annoying as election campaigns are, as a discrete period, it would be even more annoying if all the government ever did was campaign. And in fact, that's what we have. I mean, we're kind of shifting in that that direction now anyway with just constant government advertising, government photo ops, policy is chosen. I mean, they start campaigning as soon as they're elected. At least in part, this is because... Um, the idea of a campaign, a specific period where the people sit together, they, you know, we get together and we talk to each other in public spaces and things about how we think the last couple of years have gone, is actually, is actually dying. And I, I think that's a real shame because part of democracy, in, in fact, I would say the key part of democracy is the habit. The, the, there's a democratic habit. There's a ritual to it. It's... Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a kind of group participation over a period of weeks where we reconsider what has happened in the last few years. And we're you, losing you, the contemplative act, aspect of the ritual. You you are both so Australian in so many ways. That, that is... That, That's this, a compliment. This, I, <laughs> this, this idea that we have this, this one beautiful day that we all get together and we all get a democracy sausage and we That's all do so because... <laughs> And it's compulsory, and we do so primarily because the government will will tax us more if if we don't compulsorily participate in democracy. And I think we, as Australians, have completely imbibed that um, community by force ethos that that is that is built into our political system. And and Scott, I mean, what what on earth is wrong with making democracy convenient for people? Yeah, but listen, D- no, democ- no, this is not particularly Australian. <laughs> I was actually uh, just. Uh, re- uh, revisiting uh, the Romans, uh, who knew a bit about uh, democracy. They um, uh, elaborated on the Greek models, and uh, they used to vote by tribes, you know, the, the city tribes yeah. and the rural tribes, and they'd all turn up on the day and they'd line up on their uh, in their tribes and, and would vote, and uh, it all happened on the one day, and they would, uh, you know, find the, um, uh, the, ma- the various magistrates and the tribunes and 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 praetors and so on and uh, this was very very so this sort of process of voting on a day was not invented by Australians, Chris. Yeah, Chris, Chris no, I understand it was and, and it is and it is part of the ritual because ultimately governments no, need no, it's the ritual. So it's it's a ritual by force. No, uh, no, no. But, you've got but, the causation the wrong way around. We have compulsory voting because Australians love voting. 
It's not the other way around. It's not that we love voting because the government ever forced us to. We now have laws that make people go to the ballot box because Australians love voting, genuinely. But if that's, in- but if that's the rationale, I mean, now now Australians love to vote, vote early. No, well, no, so- no, now I'm going to in, uh, uh, argue against Bushnell because, no, no, it's not because they <laughs> resent the compulsion and it's one of the reasons why they're going and early voting, not because they've made up their mind, but just because they're resenting that, oh, it's bloody inconvenient. Uh, I would rather get I make- compulsory voting and have it on one day. If you don't want to vote, I want to make vote. one substantive. I, I want to make one substantive point, and this this goes to to Andrew's argument about the campaign. Which yes, campaigns, um, uh, you know, you you wouldn't want them to go forever. But having said that, I think campaigns also distort our understanding of the political system in a lot of interesting ways. So, for instance, w- w- when when I've mounted this argument in the last couple of weeks to, as it's been clearer that pre-poll was going to be a bigger and bigger deal this year um, a number of people have pointed out the the issue about New South the New South Wales election where um, Michael Daly um, was it's Michael yes Michael Daly was um, uh, re- there were some comments released that um, arguably lost him the election they were released during the campaign but the thing is about these comments, so they were released in March, those comments had been made in September and um, they had been held onto deliberately to release them late in their campaign. People are using the fact that there is a final single date that you vote and gaming that and preventing us having information. I don't think there's anything wrong. And in fact, I, 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 I'm with you, Morgan. We should have more elections and they should more, be more frequent. But we should also be able to vote when we want. And to, to the extent that that is possible under our political system, there's nothing wrong with pre-polling. And, and as I say, I actively... No, I, I I would much rather a a constant period of voting. That's 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 my my um my preference in that area. That's obviously nonsensical in the context of a representative democratic system that we have. But we should be able to broadcast whether we consent to the government that governs us, and whether that's on the day, three weeks, four weeks, two years ahead of the election, I, I, I think that would be good. I commend the listeners, uh, the rise and rise of Marcus Swimmer, the great Peter Cook comedy where um, he promises to give people the opportunity to vote and he gives it to them good and hard <laughs> until they get sick of it and appoint him <laughs> dictator for life. <laughs> That's how much people actually enjoy voting. And, uh, of course, Chris is shocked to discover that there are political tactics involved in campaigns. Um, I know, I know. Yes. Yeah, all systems can be I got be a game, hot flush when I discovered it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Should be on policy. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll be the day. Um, gentlemen, we have come to that part of looking forward where, we, uh, where I ask you, what have you been reading, watching or listening to? Who would like to take us off? Uh, why don't I, I'll kick us off. I, got, uh, I have here the, uh, the book titled Persecution and Toleration by Noel Johnson and Mark Koyama, who are uh, two professors out of uh, George Mason University and uh, who work with Mercatus Centre, who are uh, very active in uh, uh, the, the research and uh, of red tape and regulation. So... Uh, 
which uh, is uh, very interesting, but this isn't about regulation so much as it is about the uh, persecution of religion in history and the what the subtitle is, The Long Road to Religious Freedom, So, uh, which is exactly what it is. It's not, it's not a long book by any means, but it's a, it's a well-researched uh, history of uh, where religious freedom has come from and uh, how difficult it has been. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's an academic, it's an academics book. It's, it's not a, it's a, it's something you'd give to a, a first year law student. It's a, it's, it's just a, you know. And, uh, and where did it come from? Where did religious freedom come from? Uh, well, it's uh, actually interestingly, um, we we are often told this history of um, you know pre modern society that. Um, it was always just a constant um, series of persecutions and, uh, you know, religious um, – the imposition of religious orthodoxy across all of time, which has been um, which has been improving sort of consistently. It's, it's sort of like the arc of history argument, which is, um, you know, we started out as a dystopia and we're, we've just been progressing towards utopia. Um, but it's actually uh, – uh, once uh, this book actually challenges that narrative um, in that, you know – at once, uh, you know, before a certain time, we actually had a sort of, uh, in Europe, in medieval Europe at least, we had a state of toleration merely because um, society was so um, localised and there was so so little mobility between, you know, villages and, and tribes that there actually wasn't uh, conflict to begin with and therefore there wasn't the opportunity to exact uh persecution for religious differences are uh, but it's actually when when the world gets bigger and the the political uh, system encompasses a, a wider area as and, the and state disparate. becomes bigger as the state becomes bigger uh, it becomes it, it brings in more uh, uh, a disparate population yeah. and disparate ideologies is, it needs to it, it derives is there, sorry, sorry is there, is sorry. is 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 religious freedom a coherent concept um, because if you really believe that you are possessed of the truth, um, in what sense could you ever be sceptical enough about your own claim to extend tolerance to others? Um, and I think the reason I, I raise that kind of dilemma is because in the context of the, what we've seen recently with like Israel Folau, mm. who's the, the rugby player who is in danger of losing his job for expressing his religious beliefs, What's actually been suggested in response to him, and there was a something on the univer- the Oxford University blog, a response to something that you Morgan wrote. Um, yeah, they quoted Morgan on the Oxford University. Um, uh, yeah, which was which was very cool. Um, but the response was, I mean, terrible. To be honest, re- a really poor piece of philosophy um, yeah. because it does it didn't address this issue, and um, which is in a in a in a mass media society, a closely integrated administrative state. Do someone's views have to prevail? Um, and with, when it comes to Israel Folau, I mean, the, the point that this guy on this blog was making, this philosopher so-called, yeah. or that Peter Fitzsimons was making yes. just yesterday about Israel Folau, is that it's okay for him to believe what he wants, but in public he has to subscribe to essentially Peter orthodoxy. Fitzsimons' yeah. orthodoxy, right? Yeah. So the question here isn't necessarily about freedom, but about whose views will prevail. I mean, the, the point yeah. that's been made to Israel Folau over and over again, I would say, is that he should convert to Peter Simon's religion. Peter yeah, that's Simon's right. Religion. Well, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of history, um, religious persecution actually hasn't been um, because 
political leaders are, are um, committed to the truth of that orthodoxy, but it's because they derive their political, um, uh, their authority, their, uh, I can't, can't think of the legitimacy. word. Legitimacy. Legitimacy, yeah. They derive their legitimacy from um, religious authorities by imposing their orthodoxy. Uh, so, And I think that's that's still the case today, but it's just a different orthodoxy. It's a secular orthodoxy. So uh, you, you have a, you know, the political and cultural leaders who are deriving their authority uh, from imposing a secular orthodoxy, and that, that happens to capture people like Israel Folau. So... This does sound like an interesting book. I think, Morgan, you should uh, write a review for the IPA's magazine. Well, coming from the editor of the IPA Review, I'll take that uh, very seriously. I'll take <laughs> it as read. No, look forward <laughs> to that one. And if you're, uh, if you're a member, and only if you're a member, you will actually get that article in the mail uh, sometime in July. So let's do that. Um, Chris, how about you? So I've read um, a book called Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education. It's by Jeffrey, oh, sorry, Jason Brennan uh, at Georgetown University and, and Bill Magnus. He's at the American Institute for Economic Research, friends of ours. Um, it's a book on um, uh, how broken the United States higher education system is. It's a really fascinating book for a bunch of reasons. First of all, it starts by saying that they, they are deliberately analyzing questions that um, they think would get bipartisan agreement. So they're not talking about lefty professors or students or free speech on campus or anything like that. What they want to do in this book is look very closely at how, what are the incentives in the U.S. higher education system and how have they um, uh, it left us where we are now. Um, in their argument, there's basically three categories of people vying for power and control in the in, in higher education. There's the students, obviously. There's the professors, and there's the administrators. And they work through systematically the incentives of each to show why, for instance, we massively overproduce PhD students while. Um, in in a context where it's the the only job that they could get is to be a a professor or a lecturer, but there aren't enough professor and lecturing jobs. They use this model to understand why university education is largely a waste of time. It's just about signalling. Um, they use it to analyse why there's just so much waste. There's so much administrative bloat and and so forth. And it's a really I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting from my perspective because I'm a university academic, but I think if you're interested in the structural problems that have led to the, the challenges that we <coughs> excuse me, now see on, in, on campus, like the freedom of speech crisis, like um, uh, the, the growth of these um, soft humanity subjects um, uh, that, that don't appear to be achieving any significant goals, um, then you sort of have to look at the structure of the university. And um, uh, and now reading it, of course, I'm comparing it to the Australian system and there are some differences. I, I think they underplay the importance of government funding of research. Um, that That is such a huge part of the Australian system with decided as a society that the market can't provide research, so we have to pour money into the university sector to do so. And, and in my view, that has all sorts of distorting consequences, but it is a really interesting book. It's not a long read um, uh, and, and really interesting if you haven't, particularly if you haven't considered these questions before. No, it sounds like a good one. Actually, just one question on that. Books like that that you hear about, and this sounds like a valuable contribution, 
in America, in Australia, you do get the sense that whatever the it's not only that the the system has major defects, but that it seems very unsustainable uh, that it can go on the way it has been with year on year cost increases, ministry bloat, funding sources. Uh, you know, do these guys support the notion that you know somewhere along the way there's actually going to be a crisis and this has to be pulled apart? Look, uh, they, they don't go that specific to make predictions, but it's the, I have sort of mixed feelings on that because because on the one hand you could say, well, the universities have been around for a thousand years, so you know criticize a, or make predictions about the collapse of a thousand year institution at your peril. On the other hand, universities today are not universities as they were a thousand years ago or even 50 years ago. Um, the massive changes in the higher education market, in the market for credentials have just radically changed um, uh, what universities do, how they think about themselves. So they're sort of coasting on their thousand year historical reputation, but they are the result of a couple of really significant and underthought through public policy decisions made over the last couple of decades, not just mass education, but the massive funding of universities from government, um, all, all these sorts of things that have, have created. So, so they, the, the subtitle of their book is called the moral mess of higher education. And yes. they, and they mean that very specifically. It is a, what, what happens in the university sector makes give some, moral abominations in, in that it wastes people's time. Um, it uh, controls people in ways that is, it, that is unjustified and unethical. Um, uh, it, it's a, it's a very, um, uh, negative book, but, um, uh, about the system, but, but it's a very good way to, to think through some of the issues. No, it sounds, it sounds like a good one. We'll put up a link, uh, in the program notes, uh, as we'll, we'll put up a link to the, a book I have started. I can't claim to have finished it. It's another damn fat book from America. It's called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. It's by Shoshana Zuboff, who's um, been at the Harvard Business School. Uh, it's, a, it's a learned work, uh, not, not overflowing with data. It's um, very much conceptualising what, what's happened over the past 20 years with the rise of, in particular, Google and Facebook. She's coined this phrase, surveillance capitalism. She believes it's, it's, uh, it's not just new technologies uh, that are changing society, but in, in a sort of a neo-Marxian sense, it's, it's a whole new mode of production that's taken over uh, the world as these companies have essentially created what she calls a... Um, a surplus, uh, an economic surplus, uh, from your knowledge, from our knowledge, from from uh, everything that uh, these companies can find out about us through our use of Google through and, and its related entities through Facebook and uh, its related entities, this uh, pooling of information which is then provided to advertisers and actually allows predictions about behaviour, including spending behaviour, down to the individual level. And uh, what she's saying is that this is completely uh, changing our 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 lives, uh, our our place in in democracy. So it's a very uh, negative sort of book. Google are the the bad guys, I think. She basically says, you know, yeah, for two years there they were all about the user, and then the uh, dot com bubble uh, burst in two thousand. They thought they were going to go broke, and they. They had at that time they had seven guys in their advertising department. You know, they had hundreds of people developing all this great code to make you know better and better search, 
and that was their mission. And then when they were worried that they were going to go broke, um, they went down to the, <laughs> the guys in the advertising department and said, you know, could you guys help us make some money? Because <laughs> Knock up an ad system for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. is, she, is she wrong? No. Well, this is the I thing. Mean, well, she, but it's, yes, from that she's place, wrong. Well, it, well, what it is, uh, you can't say she's wrong because what, what she's done is she's, she's put an intellectual wrap around this. You know, many of the, the things that she charts are, are merely facts. Um, yes, they're all now driven by advertising. Yes, we are not the customer anymore. The user is not the customer. The, adverti- the advertisers are the customers of these companies. So the bare facts of what she says are incontrovertible. But then, there, as I say, the, 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 the neo-Marxian sort of mode of production analysis around it, she hates neoliberalism. And anyone who uses that term, you know, I'm immediately suspicious of anyway, you know, because she thinks it's terrible that these companies haven't been regulated more. So this no, is what a disaster. What a disaster that would be, though. Um, so there's an obvious uh, – I could talk about this for hours and we should have a special um, discussion about this sometime soon, Scott. But um, uh, what has happened has been a massive change in the structure of, of global capitalism and that that is definitely the case. We've moved from uh, a world of really one-sided markets where you simply walk into a – um, uh, walk into a supermarket and buy something that's not customized for you, it's just on the shelf, to a will, uh, to a platform economy. So where um, so many of our choices are being intermediated on a very large number of platforms, Google and Facebook are obviously big ones, but um, there's lots of different platforms that um, are trying to match us to products and services better than any time in history. It does create some interesting public policy challenges. It does create this ongoing social negotiation over privacy, but um, there are no serious proposals on the table about regulating these platforms that would not be massive encroaches on economic freedom, individual freedom, and consumer choice. And, And so I can understand people feeling uncomfortable and a bit concerned about some of the changes, but if we were to go down any of the paths that the left or the some areas of the Australian government, like the ACCC, have suggested, it would be a massive attack on consumer sovereignty. Very good. Uh, I'll take you up on that, Chris. We should schedule a long discussion. In the meantime, I'll, I'll put a link to that book in the program notes for anyone who wants to uh, wade through all of its pages. Bushy, what have you been up to, mate? Oh, as usual, I mean, everyone else has their really intellectual books, but my, my reading, I'm a PhD student, and so, uh, as Chris would know, that kind of turns you into a monomaniac, so I would end up just talking about the exact same thing uh, every time I came on here, if I talked about what I was reading. Um, in fact, conservatives are also, I'm writing about conservatism, and all, conservatives are so conservative that all of their books are all got the same name, they're all just called conservatism. Um, so it would be very confusing so I watched Netflix in my downtime Um, people who've heard me on this show before will know that I like to talk about unbroken run of Netflix picks Um, and so this time I I watched the Netflix movie with a really long title that I can't remember off the top of my head something like extremely Extremely dangerous. It's about Ted Bundy. I'll about, find the title yeah, for you. It's about talking. it's about Ted Bundy, um, who is a, a incredibly vile and yep. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And he, uh, Ted Bundy, was a serial killer in the United States um, from uh, Seattle. He killed people in neighbouring states. They don't know how many people he killed. They don't know exactly in which states he killed them. Um, yes, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile, um, which is a direct quote from. Uh, 
his uh, sentencing judgment in Florida, um, how his crimes were described. I won't go into the details of his crimes because they really are ghastly. He killed at least 30 women um, uh, and he was uh, just like the worst of the worst. But what's interesting about this movie... Is this a doco or a No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dramatisation, but it's made by... This is one of the things I just wanted to, to, to bring up for, was that it was made by a documentarian. This is, his, I think, his feature film debut. And so the, the back half of the film gets really bogged down in recreating and exacting detail some of the, the trials. Um, but, and, and in doing so, it abandons what is actually the, the hook, the, the premise of the movie that was really interesting and made me want to watch it, was that this was the, the promised story here was the Ted Bundy story, but told from the perspective of uh, his fiancée, the woman who lived with him and knew, and knew him best during this period where he was really escalating his killing. Um, and so the film starts out with this really interesting premise of how this this guy could be so charming. Um, and it's play, he's played in the movie Ted Bundy. He's played by Zac Efron, um, who's you know very handsome man, I think we can say. I'm not sure if we're allowed to comment on actors' appearances anymore, but Zac Efron, very <laughs> handsome man. Ted Bundy was not quite that handsome, but handsome enough that he was really charming. Women really responded to him. And so we started with this really, well, I consider to be a really interesting take on the, the serial killer story, but the film abandons it, gets bogged down in these details. Um, but what, what's, what's interesting about this story yeah, is... Disco- discovering your boyfriend's a serial killer would... Yeah, he's, they're like, that, that's, that's that a wouldn't hook, do much right? for the relationship. And so, you know, we watch a lot of movies, I think as a culture, we watch a lot of movies, a lot of, bits, a lot of stories about criminals, and some of them we do for a kind of, um, you know, uh, we sort of sympathise with the criminals. There's kind of a transgressive element to it. We think, like, you know, if you watch Ocean's Eleven or something, you're like, how cool is it that they robbed a casino in a really clever way? Obviously, it's a crime, it's a transgression, but we sort of put ourselves in that position. The charming rogue is a a classic archetype. Yeah, Yeah. but then on the other hand, we have these stories like this about Ted Bundy where, and this, this is a story that's been told many, many times since he was executed in 1989. Um, and the fascination there is that it's just impossible, I think, to imagine what was going on in his mind. And so there's always this weird distance between you and the story because the actions are so incomprehensible. And again, that's why it was pretty disappointing that the movie ended up abandoning the point of view of a character who you could actually understand, which is uh, the fiancé who was in this terrible position. So it's, wor- it's, it's actually worth checking out. I mean... Zac Efron is pretty good as Ted Bundy, really conveys the charm, the way the psychopaths can sort of switch on this superficial charm that kind of clouds people's perception of them. Um, it probably doesn't say necessarily anything good about Zac Efron that is so believable. Say, a Hollywood actor can in, impersonate in that, charm. You know, um, who knew? But, yeah, so w- worth worth a watch. Um, but, yeah, quite quite grisly. Very good. Uh, maybe, maybe one to watch. We'll think about that. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to Looking Forward. If you're not already a subscriber, you can uh, subscribe now on whatever platform you happen to be following, be it Apple's podcast app or uh, Podbeam or whatever it is. This program has been brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support our research, you can join or donate at ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today. First of all, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Go back to your conference now, mate. Well done. Uh, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. And, of course, our first-time panellists. Hope it's not the last. Morgan Begg. Thanks for having me. And finally, big thanks, as always, to our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.